Well, praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. So good to be with all of you this morning to worship the name of the Lord Most High. Let's continue our worship now as we turn to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. That's right, the Gospel of John. So at the end of each summer, we usually take a couple weeks to go through something that the elders would feel, uh, feel would be beneficial for this body. Uh, last year, we did biblical manhood, womanhood. The year before that, Romans 1. This year, we decided to do John chapter 17. Did I say 11? I meant 17. Initially, we were going to do two weeks in John 17, but we're actually going to do four weeks. And this is week one. So if you have your Bibles, John 17, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read the first five verses. This is God's Word. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having finished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be glorified in our time this morning, that you would speak to our hearts through this text, through this prayer of your Son, and again, that you would bring a change in our hearts, that you would cause us to know you, to trust you, to live for you, and again, to glorify you in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> you can be seated. Uh, in 1851, a Methodist minister named Davis Clark published a book titled Deathbed Scenes, or Dying With and Without Religion designed to illustrate the truth and power of Christianity. In this work, Clark dives deep into the accounts of the final weeks, final days, hours, and even seconds of the lives of 232 men and women. And he does so in two parts. The first part, the first 172 men and women, are listed under the heading of The Dying Christian where, beginning with Christ himself, Clark details the closing moments of believing man's time on this earth. Many who suffered greatly as martyrs, as their Lord did, but all who had an eager expectation and hope that through his sacrifice, they would one day be brought into the glorious presence of their creator. Clark then describes the death of Christian ministers, followed closely by Christian men, Christian women, and even Christian children and youth. All accounts which I feel would be proved to be very encouraging to many of us in here this morning. The second part, however, is not so much encouraging as it is frightening, terrifying, horrific. And that is, of course, what Clark referred to as dying without religion, and specifically the only true religion which is sincere faith in and reconciliation to a holy God based on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this section, Clark describes the final moments of 60 men and women who lived out their lives in total disregard for the things of God, even so far as cursing God and jeering those who trust in his Christ's atoning work up until their last miserably wretched seconds on this earth. Let me just say here, to call these 60 accounts merely frightening would actually be a tremendous understatement, especially when you listen to the audio version of these accounts, which were narrated some hundred years later by a man who, in my opinion, has one of the creepiest voices in human history. 
the audio, which I'll be sending to all of you this evening. (laughs) But I warn you, it's not for the spiritually weak or immature. I'd certainly encourage any unbeliever among us to listen to the horrors that await you, but I do want to protect the fragile and perhaps fearful sheep among us. Personally, I like listening to it from time to time as a reminder of the terrors I've been delivered from, as well as a reminder of how seriously uh, people took the reality of their own mortality and the ramifications and consequences for the everlasting souls of those who do or do not believe unto Christ for salvation. You'll hear in this work how people thought much differently about hell back then than they do now. Far from the punchline that it's become in our day and age where Christendom is filled with the four C's, compromise, comfort, community, and charisma, these accounts are filled with consideration, with conviction, contrition, and even confidence. The confidence that uh, of Christians and non-Christians alike who, from their deathbeds, come to grips with the reality that there is indeed a holy God who we will all stand before to give an account one day. For Christians, this is a delightful reality. For non-Christians, this is a dreadful reality. Now, why in the world do I bring this up now? And why in the world aren't we back in Genesis? Well, the answer is because I want you all to get serious about considering the final moments of your own life on earth, using this text as a launching pad. Uh, This is actually an introduction to the entire series. I, I want all of you, all of us, I should say, to again consider the reality of our own mortality. I want us to consider what our dying moments will be like. Think about, think about your death. Think as if somebody were to walk through those doors into the sanctuary right now with a video from the future, timestamp saying, okay, on Monday, September 4th, 2023, at 11.25 a.m., you will be dead. Here is how you will die, and they show you. If someone were to come in right now and said, 24 hours from now, you will stand before your creator, my question to all of you is, what will those 24 hours look like? What are they going to look like? What will your final hours on this globe look like? Will they, will they be filled with hope? Would they be filled with An eager expectation, a longing to be rid of this mortal body and to be in the presence of your Lord. Maybe maybe an urgent calling together of those who are closest to you, your spouse, your kids, your loved ones. Would Would your final day be filled with peace, a godly peace that surpasses all understanding, knowing full well that you are both saved and sealed with the very Holy Spirit of God? Or would they be filled with misery, lamentations, fear, panic, uncertainty, dread? That's what I want to ask you to consider this morning, okay? You know, it's been said. Considering your own death has a remarkable way of getting your focus back on your creator when you realize that we could meet him at literally any moment. The biggest lie that this world tries to to pitch is that you're going to live forever if you just exercise and take your vitamins. And that's right. Death is the, it's not only the great equalizer among men, it's the great priority recalibrator in our lives, right? Even in the lives of those who are certain that they are his. And I believe that John 17 is one of those chapters in scripture which has the power to give a person assurance of their eternal destiny one way or another, one way or the other. Are we his or are we not his? We'll find out in John 17. Are we saved by his grace? Or are we damned in his wrath? We'll find out in John chapter 17. 
For there is no mincing of words in this prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ, though the truths within it are profound and the depths are ultimately incomprehensible to our finite minds. His words are clear. His words are concise. His words are precise and full of the most cherished divine promises for those whom he came to save. You know, Spurgeon said of John 17, this prayer of Christ is an ever-precious portion to all true believers from the fact that each of them has an inalienable interest in it. That's why we're studying it together. Another said, this is the greatest prayer ever offered on earth. And it is followed by the greatest sermon that was ever preached on earth. That's why we're studying it together. Martin Luther said, this is truly, beyond measure, a warm and hearty prayer. Our Lord opens the depths of his heart, both in reference to us and to his Father, and pours them all out. His companion, Melanchthon, said, There is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or in earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. That's why we're studying it together. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, It is one of the richest, most sublime statements to be found anywhere, even in the scriptures themselves. So rich, so rich are the words of this 17th chapter that upon his deathbed, the great Scottish reformer John Knox gave directions to his wife and his secretary, uh, Richard Bannatyne, that on every day they were to read it to him at least once, saying that as a young man, his anchor of faith was first cast on this chapter where he saw that the counsel of God is stable and his love immutable toward his elect, received by him in protection and safeguard. So it was read to him every single day, along with Isaiah 53, a chapter of the epistle to the Ephesians. One biographer said this, this was punctually complied with during the whole time of his sickness, and scarcely an hour passed in which some part of scripture was not read in his hearing. Taking him at times to be asleep when they were engaged in reading, they inquired if he heard them. To which Knox replied, I hear, and I praise God, I understand better. Words which he uttered for the last time within four hours of his death. Again, I would ask you, I'd ask you today and over the next four weeks to consider the reality of your own mortality and to ask yourself sincerely, if this prayer offered up by our Lord is of, of, is, is of such comfort to your everlasting soul as it was to the soul of John Knox. That's what I want to ask you. With that long introduction, though, let's move into this remarkable prayer together here. First, please look with me at the opening words of verse 1. John writes, Jesus spoke these things. What things is he talking about? Well, again, what... Some have considered to be the greatest sermon ever preached. The discourse in chapters 14 through 16 where he instructs his disciples, where he says, I am the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. Where he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Where he says, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Where he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you so that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would abide so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Where he told them, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Where he said, a little while and you will no longer see me. I am, and again, in a little while you will see me. I came forth from the Father. 
have come into the world. I am leaving the world again. I'm going to the Father. These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. John says, in chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus spoke these things and more, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he prays. He prays. Do you see what's happening here? God is praying to God. First for himself in verses 1 through 5, then for the 11 disciples in verses 6 through 19, and then for all believers in all generations in all generations in verses 20 and beyond. So, what was the Son of God thinking of and who was he praying for in the last 24 hours of his life when he could see his own agonizing end perfectly clear? What was he thinking about? Answer, you. You. And you, and you, and me. All who would but believe in him for eternal life. You and I, if you're saved, were in the heart of the Son of God moments before his death. That's what he was thinking about. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having finished the work which you, gave me to do, which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me. They have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition, so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. But now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. For their sake I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may All be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me. And loved them, even as you have loved me. 
Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and I will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Now, if you follow along in your outlines this morning, you'll see that we have six points for these first five verses. The priority of the Son, the preeminence of the Son, the prerogative of the Son, prerogative of the Son, excuse me, the promise of the Son, the production of the Son, and the presentation of the Son. First of all, the priority of the Son. Jesus was always about his Father's business, right? Luke even tells us of the account when he was 12 years old, Mary and Joseph went to the temple for Passover, and on the return home, they noticed they had lost the Son of God. Can you imagine that? After they had asked everyone in the family and in the caravan if they knew where he was, they ended up heading back to Jerusalem only to find him sitting there and asking questions and listening to the religious teachers here. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were searching for me? Did you not know that I had to be about my father's business? He was always, uh, his whole life, concerned with the will of and the glory of his Father in heaven. And he always abided in that will. He always glorified his Father perfectly. So then, it should come as no surprise, that even in his prayer for himself, he's ultimately concerned with the Father's glory. Now, glory has been defined in two primary ways. Okay, First, the sum total of the divine attributes of Yahweh God, which again, Uh, We looked at in our study of Genesis 1, right? His nature, his character traits, for lack of a better term. His attributes, which are infinitely perfect. His perfections. That which sets him apart from everyone and everything else in all of creation. The sum total of his attributes. His power, his wisdom, his unchangeableness, his eternality, his love, his mercy, his justice, his righteousness, his wrath, and more come together to make up his glory which is what makes him and him alone worthy of our praise. Glory, though, which was manifested in the Son. Again, this is what Jesus meant when he told Thomas, look, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Though he set aside certain privileges of his deities, we read in Philippians chapter 2, he never set aside his actual divine nature. He remained God, but not God in his fully glorious state. Paul says, have this way of thinking in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men, being being found in the appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So again, he set aside certain privileges of his deity, but he also retained many privileges of deity. And he openly demonstrated his divine nature throughout his whole ministry, through interactions with the disciples and interactions with others, by praying perfect prayers, for example, by performing perfect miracles and living in perfect submission to his Father's commands in thought, in thought, word, and deed by living a perfect, sinless, spotless life, which could have only been accomplished by God in human flesh. Jesus is manifesting the glory of God by having the divine attributes of God displayed through him. Hebrews 1 says this exact same thing. We'll read it here shortly, but... He even alludes to it in this prayer here. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. So that's the first way we can understand glory. The second, of course, is the radiance of the living God, known as the Shekinah glory. Okay, The actual physical appearance of God, which no mortal man can look upon fully, the same Glory that caused Moses to have to veil his face when he came down from Mount Sinai to deliver a message from God to the people here. James Boyce says, 
In Jewish thought, any outward manifestation of God's presence was believed to involve the display of light, radiance, or glory to so, so brilliant that no man could approach it. That's the glory. Now, we're going to spend a whole morning on that manifestation of glory in a few weeks when we consider verse 24, Lord willing. But for our time now, God the Son prays to God the Father. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. In other words, further manifest your glory through what's about to happen to me. Now notice before we move on, we have another model for prayer here. Let me ask you this. If the Son of God prays, how much more should we pray? And to our Father in heaven. You know, some have called the the prayer in Matthew chapter 6 the Lord's Prayer. Have you ever heard that? That's the Lord's Prayer. Pray then like this. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. You know the rest. But actually, it's better to call that the disciples' prayer or the sinner's prayer. As he says, pray, forgive us our trespasses. Jesus was no sinner. So that prayer couldn't have been the Lord's prayer. That couldn't have been from him. Though, interestingly, wonderfully interestingly, in both prayers, there and here in John 17, Yahweh is referred to as Father. Father. Matthew 6, he says to the disciples, pray then this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, of course, who was sent into the world by the the Father to redeem a people to himself. But he told them clearly, he's your Father too. He said the same thing. Father, my Father, your Father, I just had to knock them right off their seats, to be honest. This wasn't common in Jewish thought here. Yahweh is the father. Sure, he was thought of as the father of the nation, but not necessarily to individuals. I think S. Lewis Johnson said only 13 or 14 times in the Old Testament is Yahweh himself referred to as Ab, father. Very few times. Until Jesus came onto the scene and said, Nah, those who are mine are sons and daughters of God. You are now sons. Pray then like this, our Father. That's why we pray to the Father, in the name of the Son. Paul says the same thing. This was such a big deal to Paul. For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leaving to fear again, but you have received the Spirit, capital S, Spirit, of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. He's your Father, if you have His Spirit dwelling on the inside of you. Here, Jesus prays to his Father, and your Father, if you believe, the hour has come. What hour? The hour, which he repeatedly said throughout this gospel, had not yet come. Right from the get-go, he says to his own mom when they ran out of wine at that wedding in Cana, he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What hour is he talking about here? Answer, his death and exaltation. The time for the Father to glorify himself, ultimately through the redemption of a people from every tribe and tongue, through the sacrificial death of his perfect spotless lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. The whole time throughout this gospel and others, Jesus had said, not yet, not yet, they can't kill me yet. It's not time yet, it's not my hour yet, but now, here, mere moments away from being betrayed into the hands of sinners, moments away from being mocked and spit upon, and beaten, and bruised, and struck, and scourged, 24 hours from being hung on a Roman cross, and having his lungs collapse under the weight of his own beaten body, he says, okay, now the time has come. Now is the hour. Now is the time for the ultimate glorification of the Father. Then he says in verse 2, point 2, even as you have given him authority over all flesh. The Father has given to the Son authority, power over all flesh, meaning all people, all of creation. Wait, Jesus reigns supreme over how many people? All. But what about the atheist? The secular humanist? Does the Son have authority over the atheist? 
Well, sure, he says so right there, whether they believe it or not. What about the Jew? The Jew who doesn't believe in Yahweh's Messiah has even, has even come yet. Many who actually despise the name of Yeshua. Does he reign over them too? Yeah. How about the Hindus beating Christian men, raping Christian girls, and burning down Christian churches in Manipur, India? Does he reign over them as well? Absolutely. And they will pay. They will pay. What about that Muslim scholar who smirks in arrogance and spews forth his demonic rhetoric and prays to the false god Allah, all while calling for peace to be upon his pedophile prophet Muhammad? What about the Muslim who mocks and disdains the God of Israel's Christ? Yeah, he reigns over them as well, whether they like it or not. The Father gave the Son authority over all flesh. Matthew Henry said, Over the sinful race, the Lord Jesus has all power and all judgment concerning them is committed to him. Power to bind or loose, acquit or condemn. Power on earth to forgive sins or not. Christ, as mediator, has the government of the whole world put into his hand. He is king of nations, has power even over those that know him not, nor obey his gospel. Whom he does not rule, he overrules. End quote. James Boyce noted, All means everyone. Everyone who has ever lived or who will ever live. It means the rich as well as the poor the supposedly sophisticated persons of our culture, as well as the savage living in the jungle, the strong as well as the weak, the intelligent as well as the not-so-intelligent. It means the other person. It means me. No one is exempted from the scope of this universal authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. Therefore, he may do with them as he wishes. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Therefore, he may do with them as he wishes. Leading us to point number three at the end of verse number two. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. Okay, so right here we begin to see a clear distinction raised indicating the two and only two types of people in this word all. All flesh and all whom you have given to him. Do you see that in your Bibles? You look at it in your own Bibles. People say I made it up. Jesus Christ has been given by his Father authority over all flesh, all flesh to do then with them whatever he wants to do with them, okay? And since his whole existence consists of doing his Father's will and bringing glory to his Father in heaven, his prayer in this case is that he would glorify his Father in using that authority to grant eternal life to all whom the Father has given to him. Look at it in your own Bibles now, verse 2. Notice the three gifts given in this one verse. The Father gives the Son authority. That's a gift. The Father then gives the Son the gift of a people, his chosen people. And the Son gives these people the gift of eternal life. Not eternal death. That's reserved for the rest of the all who aren't given to the Son by the Father. But rather eternal life. Three gifts, one verse. We'll talk about this more in the coming weeks to be sure. But for now... What is the distinguishing mark of eternal life? What is the promise of eternal life? What is eternal life? Don't you all want to know this as you're sitting there thinking about your death? Don't you want to know what eternal life is? Well, good, I hope so, because he tells us in verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. By the way, this is the only time he refers to himself as Jesus Christ in the whole Gospels, in all the Gospels. But how does a person know if they have eternal life? We're all about to die. I want to know. Well, again, he gives us the answer right here. That a person knows you, 
the only true God. You want to talk about an exclusive religion here. There is only one true God, the God of Israel. And that one God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you must know him intimately, not just know about him. A lot of people know about God. They know a lot of certain facts about him. But no, no, you must know him personally. You must be his child, his son, his daughter. You must know him as those little babies know their parents and their mommy and daddy that I hear out here. That's how you must know him. And not just him, but also the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom the Father sent into the world. You must be one of those who the Father then gave to the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as a gift. So then, how does a person truly know if they are part of the all whom the Father gave to the Son? How does a man or woman truly know that they know the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom he sent? They know because they believe in his word and they trust in it, all of it, okay? And, and how can they be confident in their belief, their trust, their faith? Because their faith comes from the Father. Jesus says this repeatedly in John chapter 6 when he speaks to a crowd of people who are all used to, be tolding, uh, used to being told that they had, had to earn their way to God by their good deeds, their good works. Yet, on this day, the one who has authority to actually grant eternal life in his presence says this in verse 27. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, God, set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do? So that we may work the works of God. Okay, tell us what to do. What sacrifices to make. How do we do this? How do we tie this? How do we not go on this guy's roof? What do we, like, tell us, what do we have to do? He says to them, this is the work of God. That you believe in him whom he has sent. I looked it up in every reputable translation. Same thing. The work of God is that you believe in him whom he has sent. Here is the only work that God requires, and it's not even a work at all. It's belief. It, it's faith. Ooh, my belief? My faith? My trust? My confession? My profession? You're telling me the eternal destination of my everlasting soul is based on my decision to believe? i got to be honest, I don't feel so great about that. I know me. Thank God, no. The sweet assurance of the believer comes from his then telling them over and over and over again that the ultimate source of that faith is not conjured up within themselves and therefore fickle and unstable, but rather it is from the Father himself who is both willing and able. Willing and able to save sinners, the ones whom he possessed from before the foundations of the earth and then gave to the Son as a gift as he not only authored their faith, not only supplies their faith, but also enabled them to exercise that faith required to be justified in his sight. He enables us to exercise the faith, to then turn from our sin and turn to the Son, and then he secures that faith. It's all of God. And I'm not just making this up here. This is what Jesus said in the rest of the chapter. Go ahead and turn there. Turn to John chapter 6. You can see it for yourselves. See it with your own eyes. I'll show you. I have to say this, or the elders will get emails. All right, look at verse 32. After hearing that all God required was faith alone, the, the crowd says, prove what you're saying by performing some miracle, like raining manna down from heaven, like we saw with Moses. Though many of them, by the way, had just witnessed him feeding thousands by multiplying five loaves and two fish just the day before. Verse 32. You all there? Good. Verse 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Moses has not given you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Again, it's from the Father. He's the source. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, 
I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Why did they not believe? Answer, God had not enabled them to believe. He continues in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. That's the bedrock of our faith. Not some decision, not some profession, not walking an aisle, not raising a hand, not bowing your head and saying a prayer. I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all whom he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Yet these people still grumble. They still murmur. They still don't get it. So he says it straight up in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I will raise him up on the last day. Do you see how this is all connected? We got to see it so clearly. It's so clear. See the Son. Believe the Son. Come to the Son. We have that responsibility. Come to the Son, and you will see the Son, and you will believe in the Son, and you will come to the Son if the Father draws you to the Son. And that's how you know him as Father. And that's how you know that you belong to him as a son or daughter. Now, is this true of everybody? Does everybody know him? Does everybody belong to him? Are all people saved? All flesh? No. Not everyone will be saved from the wrath of God, but only who? Only those who are his. Only his children. Only those whom he chose and by his grace draws to, him, to himself by enabling, even causing them to believe. Only those who were chosen, predestined, elected to believe from before the foundation of the world, not according to anything they did or how special they are, but only according to the sovereign work of God in their hearts and only according to his mere good pleasure. Now, folks can hate me and my beliefs and my preaching all they want, but the reality is those aren't my words either. Those are Jesus' words in John chapter 6, verse 65. No one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. But because they're his words, they're my words too. And they should be your words as well. Who cares what people think? People's opinion of me means about this much. Can you put that up there? No one can come to me. That's not Calvinism. That's not just Calvinism. That's Christism. He's the one who said it. And and if you're hearing my voice today, and much more importantly, if you're hearing the voice of God through his word today, he bids you come. Come. Come to him. I don't know all who belong to him and who don't, so we preach the same gospel to all men. And we leave the saving to him. I'm just here to say, come. Come. Believe in the Father. Know the Son. Believe in the gospel today. You will be saved if you come. You have that responsibility. Now, obviously over these next few weeks, we're going to hear more about the glorious truths of divine election. But for now, we'll close with point four. And with the typical response of some nominal Christians... Tell me if this sounds familiar in our age of deconstructionism. As a result of these hard teachings, many of his disciples went away. We're not walking with him anymore. So Jesus turns and says to the twelve, Do you also want to go? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where are we going to go? We're down to, what, 23 hours and 15 minutes before that person comes in with that video. These are the words of eternal life. Only one guy has it. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you believed and come to know Jesus Christ is the Holy One of God? Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as you sit in that seat right now? You could very well be dead in 24 hours, 24 minutes, 24 years maybe. I don't know. As the writer of Ecclesiastes says, man does not know his time. But you can know that you believe in him. If you truly hear his word, hear his call, respond and believe. Well, man may not know his time. But the Son of God surely knew his. As he continues his prayer in verse 4.5 in your outlines, he says, I glorified you on earth, having finished the work which you have given me to do. Now, what's he referring to here when he says, I have finished the work? Well, in his eyes, and in the eyes of the all-knowing, omniscient Father, who has declared the end from the beginning, Isaiah 46.10, the work of redemption was already completed. Now, of course, this would go on to be played out in time and space. Jesus would, in fact, be betrayed by Judas, condemned by the religious leaders, punished by Pilate, nailed to a Roman cross where he would breathe his last and say, it is finished. But here he's saying, because the hour has come, and I have kept your will perfectly up until now, because this is the appointed hour, I'm praying that you would, through this finished work, verse 5, glorify me together with yourself with the glory that I had with you before the world began. In other words, Father, when I breathe my last breath upon this earth and you raise me from the dead three days later, return me to that state of pre-incarnation glory. That's what he's saying. Perfect glory I possessed with you clear back before the creation of all things where I existed with you, co-eternal, co-authoritative, co-equal. In perfect unity, perfect fellowship with both the Holy Father and the Holy Spirit. This plea for glorification looks forward to the culmination of the work of his, that he completed on earth. The culmination, which is his heavenly exaltation following his triumphant resurrection and glorious ascension. Again, Philippians chapter 2. And we'll, we'll close here pretty quickly. Therefore God also highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Those Hindus, those Muslims, every knee will bow to those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. For some it will be too late in a salvific sense, but they're still going to confess it. Don't let it be too late for you. And there it is, exaltation and glorification. He prayed for it in John 17. That's exactly what happened. The writer of Hebrews says the same thing. Remember our verse 1. The writer of Hebrews says this, God, having spoken long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days spoke to us in his Son, whom whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds. Who, listen to this now, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power, who, having accomplished cleansing for sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he inherited a more excellent name than they. All right, we're out of time this morning. You can see why we need more than two weeks to consider this monumentally significant. That's right. Next week, we're going to see him intercede for the 11. Then we'll hear how he prayed for us, the church, his body, his bride. And then heavenly glory, when his chosen people are with him where he is. I'll close our time this morning by, again, asking you to consider your eventual end. Your inevitable demise from this earth should the Lord tarry. 
I want you to meditate upon the everlasting nature of your soul and the sobering reality of it being in either one of two places when you die, either in the presence of your heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus Christ or in the furthest place in all of creation from his love and common graces that you get to experience even in this world today. In fact, in a place of everlasting torment. Now is the time to be sure as you sit in that seat. Now is the time. My prayer for all of you this morning, for everyone in this room, everyone watching, listening online, is that you would know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent into the world. And if you're not absolutely sure this is true of you, I would invite you, I would implore you, I would beg you to cry out to him this morning. Cry out to him. Ask him if you are one of his. If you are one of those whom he has elected for salvation from before the foundations of the world. And if so, ask him to make this abundantly clear by the strength of his spirit and the power of his word. Ask him to change your heart. Ask him to transform your heart to to cause you to know, to cause you to serve him, obey him, and love him for the rest of your days on earth and all of eternity thereafter. Ask him to make this a reality in your life today. Please. For those who do already have full assurance, full confidence that you are a part of the all those who the Father has given to the Son, I would encourage you to read this prayer tonight, throughout this week. Meditate on the truths therein, and then praise your Father in heaven for what's been done for you through Christ. Much more on that next week, if the Lord wills. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'll invite Noel and the music team to come up and close us in musical worship. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of eternal life. The gift of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the the amazing grace of the gospel that you have allowed us to be a gift to him. Lord, we're, we're humbled this morning by the depth of this prayer of our Lord, and we're, we're grateful for it, not only as an example, but just as a testimony to your love for us. We love you, Lord, and uh, we love your word, we love your gospel, and it's a delight to give praises to your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.